Just want to reemphasize one thing that Sarah just told us there. Uh, we got home groups, and so you can jump on that. There's still time to do that today. Actually, one of our groups is meeting tonight, but this week they start. Very easy commitment here. There's only, it's eight weeks of Ephesians. Only, we're meeting every other week, so that's only four meetings. Easy on-ramp to check this out. They're tied to the previous Sunday. We think you'll enjoy them. So you can go to our website and do that or your church app and do that. We'd love for you to self-select into a group with an address and join up. And uh, we, th- we think you'll like that. We're, as she said, starting a new series that is connected to that. And it's called Ephesians, Paul's letter to Ohio. And uh, we have a lot to learn. Ephesians, an amazing book, not very long. If it was an email, it'd be maybe a page or two. And uh, Paul wrote this to the church while he was imprisoned in Rome. He had some freedom, wrote these letters. He's writing this to the people of Ephesians. He knows them because he was actually there a couple of times. He pastored there for two or three years. And it was a large, major city in what is today modern-day Turkey. And it was a very pagan, kind of a dangerous place to be. In ancient times, it was best known because it contained one of the seven ancient wonders of the world, which was a temple to Artemis or Diana that stood on a hill right outside the city. So that's how people knew uh, Ephesus. And it was near a port, busy city, large city, could be a dangerous city for believers. For example, one time, some, so many people were coming to Christ that Paul had led to Christ that, um, that there was a riot what happened was the silversmiths in the city were making these idols to Diana. So many people started believing in Jesus that their sales dropped off and they weren't making as much money as they had been before. And so they rioted in the city square and, and, and Paul basically needed to, to get out of there. And so that's kind of the history of Ephesus. Now Paul's writing back to this city, knows a lot of these people, and we're going to and he has, it's six chapters. First three chapters are more theological. The last three chapters are more application. So we're a little more theological. It's going to be a little bit more like being in a classroom. Are you ready for it? All right. You're ready for You say you're ready for it. That's great. All right. We're going to start in Ephesians chapter one, beginning in verse three. So I invite you to turn on your devices or grab uh, your Bible or one of the chair rack in front of you. And here's what it says, beginning in verse three. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us to adoption as sons through Christ Jesus to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us. In all wisdom and insight, he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his kind intention, which he purposed, in him, with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth. 
In him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will, to the end that we who are the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. So that's a mouthful, right? That's actually like one sentence in the Greek. I mean, it's just like, boom, he just throws it all out there. And here, what I want us to focus in on first is that phrase in the first verse I read, verse three, we are given Every spiritual blessing, talking to the believers at Ephesus. Let's check that out again. Verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Notice the past tense. Who has blessed us. Not will bless us. Who has blessed us. Now, no doubt, a lot of people in Ephesians have lost... uh, Things, probably broken relationships. It's a pagan city. Uh, Temple prostitution, all kinds of stuff going on. And now they're radically changing their lives. And then they get this, Paul, some you have received every spiritual blessing. And I I don't think we focus on that enough. I mean, in our culture, you know, we're always talking about people maybe striking it rich or hitting the lotto or investing in the right company or whatever and, and just turning that into a bunch of money. And we see people in our culture that have more money than they need or that they could possibly spend. And we think, wow, wouldn't that be nice? Do you realize as a believer, you have something way better than that? Every spiritual blessing has been given to you as a believer, we can never completely understand the value of the love that he gives us. What I want to do now is to work through this passage and think through this amazing text, basically working through it in three or four questions. It's four. Four questions. So we're going to work through in four questions. Are you ready for that? Can you hang with me? All right. First, first question. How do we get every spiritual blessing? If he's saying that's what we have, well, how do we get that? And it's interesting because in verse 3, he says, in Christ. In verse 4, he says, in him. In verse 6, he says, in the beloved, which he's talking about Jesus. In verse 7, in him. In verse 9, in him. In verse 10, in him. In verse 13, in him twice. So how do we get it? The spiritual blessing, in him. In Jesus, that's how we get If we have Jesus, we have every spiritual blessing because we are united in Christ. We are united to or with Jesus. And, and we all like that. I mean, that sounds great. We're believers. We're united in Christ. Good stuff. That's not what bothers us in this passage. But then he says this in verse 4. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us to adoption as sons through 
Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will. And then in verse 11, he says this. Also, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. Now, we like every spiritual blessing, but if we know what predestined means, that bugs us. Predestination bothers us if you thought about it for any amount of time. The scripture teaches clearly that when we become believers, it's actually because God has chosen us before the foundation of the world. God knew us in advance. God has chosen us. He's picked us. He's loved us. From God's perspective, he chose you before you were ever born. The pro why that bugs us is that's not how we perceive it because we perceive our side of the equation, which is that we have chosen to follow God. So here in the Bible, you just have to know there are two biblical truths that exist together in tension with one another. One is God predetermines who will be saved. He chooses us. The second is we exercise our free will to choose Christ in order to be saved. From our perspective, we choose to follow God, to follow Jesus. And so we have this all over Scripture. For example, in the Bible it says God wants all to be saved. We read that in 1 Timothy 2, 3 and 4. We read that in 2 Peter 3 and 9. We, we read that all over about just people making the decision to have faith, to believe. For example, in Romans 10, 9 it says that if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That, those are acts of our will. Confess, believe. Both statements are equally true. And so that's what I call a paradox. A biblical paradox, the way I define it, people argue this, is that one true, God chooses us before the foundation of the world. That's one truth. Secondly, we exercise the free will that God has given us to have faith or belief and to follow him. These are both true, but from our perspective, it seems like they contradict. But we know they don't actually contradict. We're just not smart enough to figure it out, how to put it together, because we're limited by our own assumptions. And, and we all have to be reminded of this every once in a while. Do you guys remember the old nine-dot puzzle? You know, nine dots on a paper uh, written like this. And then the puzzle is this, right? The puzzle is connect all nine dots with four straight lines without picking up your pencil. And so you start drawing on the nine dots. And if you've ever done this before and you're a little frustrated, it doesn't seem to work, doesn't seem to be that easy. But... But, and this is a classic, by the way, there's a, there's, this is a classic illustration of out-of-the-box thinking, which should give you a big hint, because here's how you solve the puzzle. Here are the lines. To solve it, you have to draw the lines beyond the box that the nine dots make. So that's the out-of-the-box thinking. See the two corners there of the triangle go beyond the nine, and so everybody says, see, You've brought in assumptions. We're, we're, we just, 
We limit ourselves the way we think. The first time we see this puzzle, and we're thinking the line should be within that box. But no, the way you solve it, you go beyond the box. And so that teaches us about our assumption. Of course, this puzzle could be harder. You could say, okay, now do it with three straight lines connected without lifting your pencil. Now, that's going to be a lot harder because we barely did it with four, right? But you can do it with three like this by just assuming that you don't have to go through the middle of the dots, that if you could just barely catch the dots, that would be good enough. And so there's a way to solve the problem with just three lines, which is way harder than four, right? And, and then it can get harder than that. What if you were told to solve the puzzle with one line? Well, there's actually a way to do that. It looks like this. You just need a really thick line. <laughs> but, 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 if, but if you're doing it with a pencil, that, that doesn't actually work. Well, but, but we have assumptions. One of the assumptions that we're making that limit us is we're assuming we're thinking two-dimensionally. And we're assuming that we can't manipulate the paper. So one way we can solve it is we just fold the paper. And if you fold the paper right, you can put all those dots right together where one line, one small line, will, will take care of them all. We'll connect them all, right? Are you with me on this? The dotted line is the fold. You're with me on this, right? You can fold it together, one line. Or if you want to get a little more complicated, you can actually cone the paper, roll the paper, and theoretically there's one straight line that will zip around there and connect all those dots. That's a little bit tougher to think about. But here's the one I like. You want to solve it? With one line, well, then I just tear all the dots out of the piece of paper, line them up the way I want them, and connect them. You see, it's our assumptions that we can't manipulate the paper. First, can't go outside the box. Then our lines have to be a certain way. Then we have to have the middle of the thing. Then we can't, you know, we're assuming we can't manipulate the paper because we're thinking two-dimensionally. All those ways. Now, that's just an illustration, right, of out-of-the-box thinking. Illustration. Now, if our own assumptions limit us to solve a very simple puzzle, how much do you think our own assumptions cause us to not understand an infinite God? Finite man, we can't even solve a puzzle, and we're going to try to figure out the intricacies of an infinite God? Never going to happen, right? Our assumptions will never allow us to do that with accuracy, our incorrect assumptions limit our ability to solve problems and it, they limit our ability to understand a finite God, because an infinite God, because we're finite. That's what I'm trying to say here. Here's the way Paul says it in Romans, Romans 11:33. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. That's exactly right. Now, when we get into this issue of predestination, it really bothers people. And, there are, and, here, and people have been debating this for hundreds of years. Now, and, and there's a problem when you, when you get too locked in on either side of the debate. So I want to explain that to you. So the problem with people that get too locked in to the disregard of the other side of the sovereignty of God and predestination, also called election, 
when you get too drilled down on just that one side, what you tend to do then is say, okay, if this is all about God and God's choice, then all of a sudden it really doesn't matter if we share Christ with people because who's going to get saved, going to get saved? There's nothing you can do to change that. And so people who are really drilled down on the predestination side or what we would call hyper-Calvinism or some people would call that the Reformed, when you get too drilled down that way, a lot of times that's at the expense of us doing evangelism, talking to our friends, pointing with people about God, where the Bible's full of that, arguing for people to understand Jesus. On the other side of the debate, if you get too locked in on personal responsibility, us exercising our own free will, there's some inherent problems with that. One is, if you're thinking, okay, we can all be saved, but now I get this, and I'm seeing it, and I'm believing, and I'm thankful, and I'm receiving this gift, somewhere in there buried pretty deep, because we know we don't deserve it, but buried in there kind of deep, hard for us to see, is somehow we're thinking that we're somehow better than other people because we've figured this out or we see it or we're more appreciative or we're more sensitive to it or whatever. And we tend to think we're better than others and we are not. Or the other problem when we drill down on the free choice side is it leads to people struggling with eternal security. If it's all me that, 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 that brings me into a relationship with Christ. Well, what when I don't feel close to Christ? Well, then people start struggling with it, that they could lose it. But even this text is telling us that's impossible. So if you emphasize one side over the other, it leads you into biblical error. You have both of these sides are equally true in Scripture and they exist in a tension that we can't completely resolve. Does that make sense? That's what we're dealing Does that make sense? Because I might have lost some of you there because that was a little weak. Did, did, did that just make sense? Thank you. Great. Now, what's interesting to me is that every time you read a passage that, that is emphasizing the truth of predestination or election... Every, I think, I think, every time you read a passage like that in the New Testament, within a paragraph, you will read another verse that emphasizes our free choice. What's weird to me is that they always exist together in the same passage, which is crazy if you think about it. For example, in our passage here where predestination is mentioned two times, Look at verse 13 that we covered. In him, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. What's he saying there? Even though we're predestined, he's saying, but you guys, Paul's writing to them, you guys used your free will to listen, to hear, and to believe. That's what he's saying. And so, but he, here's the deal when it gets right down to it. We struggle with the concept of predestination because of the issue of fairness, which is a little bizarre if you think about it because that's like us thinking that somehow we are more fair than God, which I guarantee us that is not the case, okay? 
we start thinking, well, hold it. If God's choosing some or God's predisposing some or what, well, then that's not fair to others. But Scripture clearly teaches us repeatedly that God wants all to be saved. We see that, for example, in uh, 1 Timothy. We see that in, in 2 Peter. God wants all to be saved. We are finite beings, and we don't know everything God knows. We don't understand everything God is, and we don't love nearly as deeply as God loves. Uh, one way to kind of deal with this is Peter actually struggled with this a little bit. We talked about Peter like four weeks ago, or three or four weeks ago. I don't know if you remember it, but yeah, three weeks ago. We were talking about Peter. Remember, he had denied Christ, failed God. We were talking about moving on, you know, hindsight 2020. And then remember on the shore of Galilee, Jesus re restored him. Remember how all that played out? Well, then later, the resurrected Christ is with Peter. And some of you will remember this, some of you won't. But in the Gospels, it's told that basically Jesus tells Peter, hey, by the way, you're going to die for me. You're going to be killed. You're going to be martyred for your belief in me. Which is kind of a weird thing to hear in advance because there's good news and bad news there. You know, the good news is, wow, that means I'm going to, I'm going to be faithful to the end. Yeah. Bad news is, what kind of a gruesome way are they going to kill me? You know, I saw how they killed you. Is it going to be like that? Well, so Peter's like, okay. Okay, Jesus, I'm going to die for you. Okay. But then the question of fairness kind of comes into Peter's mind. Do you remember what he did then? He looked over at one of the other disciples, and it happened to be John, one of the younger disciples. And, he, and Peter says to Jesus, what about him? Do you remember that? Well, okay, I'm going to be killed. Well, what about him? What's going to happen to him? Do you remember how Jesus replied to that? Jesus says, what's that to you? What's that to you? You follow me. What's Jesus telling Peter when Peter's going, okay, I'm okay with that. I can die for you. But is this fair? Are we all going to do this? And Jesus says, that's none of your business. You do you. Follow me. You do you and just worry about following me. You do you and just remember, love God, love people. The two greatest commands that Jesus had already given him. That's what he's saying. I think a lot of times we overthink predestination and free will. When we need to let God be God. Just let God be God. And then we focus on following him. And loving other people, and of course, we love other people by sharing with them the truth of God's word, just like we're commanded to in Scripture. And then we live with the tension, knowing that somehow, mysteriously, all believers are chosen before the foundation of the world, and somehow, mysteriously, we all use our free will to respond to the greatest message, and that God wants everyone to be saved. We just live with the tension of those truths. So that's one question, all right? Next question. What are the spiritual blessings? If he's saying, hey, we receive these spiritual blessings, well, what are they? Well, let's, let's look at that. There, here are some of the blessings that he mentions in the text besides being chosen, which is a major blessing. Remember, being chosen means here we are in 2020, but way back here before the foundation of the world, 
God knew you and said he loved you, saved you, predetermined. Now we're here. By the way, the text always talks about, oh, and there's a time when Jesus is going to wrap everything up. It says that in the very last verse, and it pops up in the middle there. It's the, the fullness of time. But anyway, he's saying all that. And then, okay, so besides being chosen, then what are those spiritual blessings? Well, one is that we move from alienation from God to adoption by God. God adopts us as sons, and he doesn't mean that's just the males. He's saying, no, men and women were adopted as sons, which sons were in ancient times were sometimes handled a little different way, way more better than sometimes daughters were. It wasn't always that way, but sometimes it was. So us as people were adopted as sons, he's saying. Adopted. The thing about that is we read that in Scripture, and I think we just kind of go, oh, adopted, yeah, great. But we sort of miss the impact of God's love in that. And so for us to kind of flesh that out a little bit, I want to share a story of a girl who waited a long time to be adopted by her foster parents. It's not for Grammy, but it's, yeah, it's another gift. Why don't you careful open it up. I want you to read it. Read it out loud. My new name will be Ivy Abigail Zizorka. Let's flip it over. I'm going to be adopted? <laughs> we love you, sweetheart. We'll always be your parents. I love you, sweetheart. Yeah, you can clap for that if you want. You know. We miss the emotional impact of being adopted, being alienated from God, no spiritual family, to be brought into his spiritual family and adopted. It's no coincidence that Jesus, when he describes our relationship with God, more often than any other way he describes that is the relationship between a father and a child. And it's so easy for us to miss the impact of what that means to us. We, we understand a parent's love. A lot of us are parents here, and we, we get, we love our children. We would die for our children. Wouldn't even be a, a thought. That's exactly how God loves you. Exactly how God loves you. Only God loves you even more than that. That's how God loves you this morning. Not only from alienation to adoption, but 
Another spiritual blessing that we move from guilt and shame to holiness and blamelessness. Guilt and shame are kind of, they're different, but they're connected. Guilt is what we feel because of something that we've done that's wrong. Shame is what we feel after we've done something wrong because of who we are. We've been adopted, and so we feel shame. Uh, I don't know if you remember, but uh, last week we were talking about David and his sin and his, his restoration in God, and we had gone to Psalm 51. I didn't have a lot of time there, but there are some just great passages in Psalm 51 that are dear to my heart where David's crying out after his sin with Bathsheba, after Nathan confronts him, and he, he's crying out, cleanse me, God, cleanse me. Wash me, wash me, and I'll be whiter than snow. And God does. And that's what God offers us today. That we can be cleansed, washed, free from sin through Christ's blood. And a lot of times I'll try to illustrate this with different things in my life. Uh, one time, when I was in my 20s, I was working on the, in the oil fields of the panhandle of Texas near a place called Dumas, Texas. And part of our job was to keep these huge pumping stations that were just out in the prairie, out in the middle of nowhere, running. And then these would be in metal buildings, and you know, it would be 105, 110 degrees in those buildings. And, and these engines that were the size of trucks would, would shed off grease and oil uh, that would be automatically pumped into them. But... And then there was always a, a collection base, basin that was covered with grates, a pit. And I was low man on the totem pole, of course, and so I was the guy that had to clean that out. And so you'd move the heavy steel grates and step down to this four-foot-deep pit, and about waist-deep would be grease and oil and dead animals, rabbits, different animals that had gotten in there and fell through, and, and, then you, and it smelled great. And it'd be about 110 degrees, and then a truck would pull up with one of those suction hoses, and I'd be down in the pit sucking all that out. I mean, there, you know, there was no rubber boots or anything. I'm just in there. And then after it all got sucked out, even though that it's still going to be dirty, you know, my boss wanted it squeegeed out and cleaned, shiny clean, even though the next day it's going to have an inch of grease. But he's my boss, so I don't question that. I'll do whatever he tells me to do because he's paying me, so... I'd get a squeegee and squeegee all that out and wipe it down with a rag and it would be shiny. It would be clean. I, on the other hand, would not be clean. I would be covered with filth, rotting carcasses, grease, and oil. I would get in my truck like, oh man, even though it was you know, just old vinyl, get in there, my truck would be covered with grease and oil. I drove home, I actually rented a room from, from a man who lived in this small town, Dumas, and Luckily, he had a washing machine in his garage so I could strip off, you know, throw that stuff in the washer without even going to the house because you're just dripping muck and it smells terrible. And then I would go in and take a shower. You know how good that shower felt? Washing away the smell, the grease, the grime, the animal parts away. God has washed us cleansed us from all of the sin that sticks to our souls, 
He's washed us completely. He's made us whiter than snow. All our sin washed away. David says, as far as the east is from the west, it's gone. And not only that, then God declares us holy and righteous like Christ is. He declares us holy and righteous. Although we don't deserve to be holy and righteous, he cleans us and then declares us holy and righteous by his grace. Spiritual blessings. Third, how he blesses us is that we are secure. We are sealed. We are guaranteed our inheritance. I don't know if you caught it in verse 13. It says, in him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance. So a pledge is a guarantee. When we become a believer, when we choose to follow Christ, the Holy Spirit comes into our life as a deposit, a pledge to guarantee our future inheritance with God forever. And nothing can change that. It is guaranteed we can never lose our salvation because we are sealed. We are guaranteed our future inheritance. We have the Holy Spirit as a pledge for that. And then how do we get that, that guarantee? Through hearing and believing. Third question. Why can we have those spiritual blessings? It's because Jesus died to redeem us. Redemption, as mentioned repeatedly in chapter 1 here, because Jesus died to redeem us. Redemption, or to redeem, is a, a word from the first century that was used to buy the freedom of a slave. Sometimes in the Roman world, the slave could even do that. He could make money and buy his own freedom. But more than, often than not, it was somebody had to step up and purchase that slave's freedom. That's what God has done for us. Ephesians, verse, beginning of verse 7 says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. He's bought us, repurchases. Our creator has bought us again. And redemption is only possible for a price to be paid, and that's the blood of Jesus. Why? Because we've all violated God's commands. We've all dirtied ourselves before him. We've all rebelled against him and his standard of contact, what he tells us to do. We've all said, no, in this area, I'm doing my own thing. And therefore, we alienated ourselves from a holy and righteous God forever. And the just penalty for that is that we would be separated from God forever. It's what we want. When we're sinning against him, we don't think of it that way. But God made a way by sending his one and only son who died on the cross, shed his blood to pay our penalty for sin so that we could be with him forever. That's the gospel. That's the why. And then last question, how do we know if we have these spiritual blessings? And this is a little tricky because a lot of people, they know they're not believers. 
But a lot of people think they're believers and don't know they're not believers. And here's one way maybe to know. As a matter of fact, I could just ask you. Do you know for sure that you're a follower of Christ? Do you know for sure you'll go to heaven? Do you know for sure that you're a Christian? And people give all different answers to that. One of the most popular answers is this. Am I sure I'm going to go to heaven? Well, no, but, but I'm trying my best to follow God. I'm trying. And that answer is wrong. Because trying means that you're earning it, that you're working for it, that if you do good enough, that somehow you're in, and if you don't do good enough, you're not in. So when somebody answers like that, then I know, okay, that's not how a believer would answer that. But it gets a little more complicated than that, because some people will say this. I'll say, do you know for sure that you're a Christian? They'll say, Kevin, yeah, of course I'm a Christian. Then... That causes me to question. It depends on how flippant they say that. I'm not saying they're not a believer if they respond that way, because we can know for sure. But if their answer is, this, well, yeah, of course. I've been a Christian forever. You know, I've always believed in God. Well, no one's a Christian forever. Nobody always believed. Nobody always was a follower. You have to make a decision. It's an act of your will. But if they answer like that, there's something missing there. And it's in the text. It's God's glorious grace. And here's what I mean by that. You know, I think the way, you know, probably the better way for us as believers to answer that question is, do you know for sure that you're a believer? Yes, I know for sure, but it's crazy. I don't know why. I do not deserve it. I don't know how it came to be that way. I don't know why God would do that for me. I'm not worth it. It makes no sense. That he loves me. Christ for me? You gotta be kidding me. You see, a true believer should feel the weight of his glorious grace. And if we're somehow just responding to God in some flippant way, and, and that's not in there, again, you can respond, it could be in there, and you just answered the question depending on the context. But a true believer will feel the weight of God's glorious grace. Hey, if you're just saying, oh, yeah, yeah, of course I'm a believer. You're... God's grace isn't glorious to you. And that's what Paul's talking about right here. We should be careful how we think of that. God's grace being glorious is mentioned in verse 6, verse 14. You know, here's the deal. God wants all to be saved, and he's waiting for you. God, who we don't really understand how he chooses us, he is waiting for us to choose him. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that God didn't help us do that. I'm saying, but when it comes down to our responsibility, God is waiting for us to choose him. And we choose him by listening to the message, by hearing it, by responding with faith and belief. And then we know that's real. 
if we follow him with our life. Following him doesn't get us salvation, but when our salvation is real, it will change us. That's in our motto, right? Discover Jesus. Sorry, discover truth. Decide on Jesus. I'm messing up our motto. Discover truth. Decide on Jesus. If you've really done that, you'll demonstrate change in your life. You cannot feel the weight of God's glorious grace and not be changed. And then we deploy for others. He's waiting for you. If you want to know more information about that, or maybe you're thinking you've been a believer and now you're questioning that, we'd, be, we'd love to talk to you. Room one, after the service is over, we'd love for you to be a part of that.